Well, we're in the season of Advent, as we've heard, and Advent means arrival. It's a season of waiting for a good arrival, like when you're looking at your phone and the three dots are going and you're waiting to find out what they named the baby. Or like when you're anxiously craning your neck and watching the doors to see airport security to see, is it them who's walking through? It's the season of waiting for Jesus, waiting for him to be born and waiting for him to come again. The season of waiting for light at the end. The scripture lessons this season aren't random. They're drawn from a group of lessons that the church has read throughout the centuries during the season of Advent to pull us into that space of waiting. And this, the second Sunday of Advent, the scripture calls our attention to John the Baptist, also called John the Forerunner because he was God's prophet who went before Jesus to announce who Jesus was and to announce the salvation that Jesus was bringing. What we're seeing here is an icon of John the Forerunner by the contemporary iconographer Bill McNichols. John is often depicted with wings because his status as a messenger was like that of God's angels who were God's messengers. John's a unique figure in the Bible. He's the final prophet in the long history of Israel's prophets, and Jesus calls him the greatest man who was ever born of woman. And before Jesus begins his public ministry around the age of 30, John had already established a reputation for himself. He was unrelenting in naming the wrongdoing of the society at the time, and that included criticism of its rulers. That's what eventually got him killed. And he was calling the people of Israel out into the wilderness by the Jordan River for this ministry of repentance, of ritual, watching, of ritual washing called baptism in the Jordan River. But our passage this morning isn't actually about John's ministry per se. It takes us back to the birth of John, just six months before Jesus' own birth. And some context helps understand the story of John's birth. You see, an angel had appeared to John's father, Zechariah, and he had told Zechariah that he and his wife, Elizabeth, who were childless and old, would have a son named John. And he'd prepare the people of Israel for the arrival, the advent of the Messiah, their Savior. And Zechariah said, and I'm sort of paraphrasing here, no way. And the angel said, since you didn't believe me, you're going to be deaf and mute until all these things that I've told you come to pass. So nine months go by, and that's where our lesson this morning picks up. These relatives, and just sidebar, can you believe these people? These relatives, they won't let mom name the kid. So they turn to Zechariah, the dad, and they ask him, what do you want to name him? And he scribbles on a wax tablet. His name is John, just like the angel said. And his ears are opened, and his tongue is loosed, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he praises God. It's what Zechariah says next, Luke 1, verses 68 to 79, that we're really going to focus on today, though. This passage of Scripture, Zechariah's song, is traditionally known as the Benedictus for the first word in the Latin translation. Blessed Benedictus be the Lord God of Israel. The Benedictus is said or sung every day in Anglican morning prayer after the second Scripture reading, except when it's one of the readings for this morning, as it, uh, one of the readings for the morning as it is today. And I want us to sink into these words that the faithful have prayed for millennia, and I want to show you the logic to what's happening here, because this isn't just sort of free-flowing stuff. No, by the Holy Spirit, uh, Zechariah is declaring something that we need to hear. 
Now, the thing about the Benedictus is it's super dense language, just piled on, piled on dependent clauses. So I can't just sum it up. We need to put it under the magnifying glass and do a deep dive together. So I really encourage you to follow along in your Bible or your app uh, or in your Pew Bible. It's page 58 of the New Testament. They start renumbering again toward the back. 58 of the New Testament. We're in, right at the top of the page. We're in Luke 1, starting at verse 68. All right, so line by line, here we go. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. It's the first words that Zechariah has spoken in nine months, and it begins with this, and it raises the question right off the bat, what's blessed, what's blessed mean? Because it's one of those words uh, I found when I was preparing the sermon where you know what it means until you have to define it, and then you are stuck. Like hashtag blessed on social media, it can mean something like lucky or fortunate or doing well or look at me, but that's not what's happening here. The original languages, though, shed some light. Benedictus in Latin, eulogetos in Greek, they mean spoken well of or good speech, and that's where we get benediction and eulogy from, to speak well of someone. So Zechariah, he's been mute, and his first words are to say, the Lord God of Israel is worthy of good speech, of praise. I draw in my breath and my tongue shapes words, and when I speak of the Lord, let it be praise, let it be adoration. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Still verse 68. For he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. Well, why is God to be spoken well of? Blessed because he has looked on his people, or trans alternately translated visited. He has looked on his people, he has visited his people, and he has redeemed them. Now here and throughout the whole of Zechariah's song, he's using language that's drawn straight from the Jewish Bible. Don't mistake this for a free composition. He's not just kind of making this up as he goes along. He's, he's composing a song out of quotes that he's drawing from the Hebrew Scriptures, the Scriptures that he knew down to his bones. It's like a, a verbal collage or a quilt of words. And he's doing this to connect what's happening in his day with some key events that have happened in the history of the Jewish people as they await their promised Savior. And so what he's saying here, with God has visited and redeemed his people, he's drawing a connection to what's happening in his time to the Exodus, when God visited and redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt 1,500 years earlier. The Exodus was the most important event in Jewish history because it's the day that God didn't forget his people in their distress. He, he came to their rescue. He came to set them free. And so what Zechariah is saying here is what's happening now, the coming Lord that Zechariah's baby John is going to prepare the way for, this is like that. It's like the Exodus. It's that big of a deal. Verse 69, he has raised up a mighty Savior for us. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us. It's interesting. Zechariah is not talking about John here. He's talking about Jesus, but, but Jesus hasn't been born yet. So what's going on? How is this something that has happened? Well, this clues us in that Zechariah is speaking what we might call the prophetic past tense. It hasn't happened yet, but it's going to have happened. It's as good as done. You can count on it. And Zechariah can say this with confidence, filled by the Holy Spirit, because he's seen the first part of the angel's words come true. He's seen his son born. 
And so the rest follows. Raised up a mighty Savior for us. Not just a Savior, but a Savior for us. And that us includes you and me and everyone. It's coming. It's as good as done. Nothing to do but wait and watch. Verse 69 still. Raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David. Well, here's Zechariah tying in another ancient prophecy that God would raise up a descendant of King David who lived a thousand years before Zechariah to rule his people. A mighty savior from David's house, David's line, and that was Jesus. Jesus was a descendant of David. Verse 70, raised up a savior as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. And here Zechariah is bringing in the whole line of the prophets of Israel. Because you see, the Jewish history had been in many respects an unhappy one. Suffering in foreign exile and under the thumb of foreign oppressors. And for centuries, the prophets of Israel had promised redemption. As he spoke through his prophets, verse 71, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. That's what they'd promised. For centuries, the prophets had said that the oppression would not last forever, but that God would be true to his promise. You could still count on it. That the people would be saved from the ones who hated them. But the last prophet was Malachi, whose book we heard this morning. 500 years before Zechariah's time, and God had been silent ever since. So think about that. 500 years of oppression, but counting on the ancient promise that it would someday end. Verse 72, thus he has shown the mercy, he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant. Thus, meaning by visiting and redeeming his people, by raising up a mighty savior, by doing this now in Zechariah's day, God has shown the mercy promised to all the people who had lived before and he has remembered his holy covenant. What covenant is that? I'm glad you asked because Zechariah has an answer for us. Verse 73, it's the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham. Okay, so we've seen how Zechariah is tying his day to the landmarks of Jewish history. He's brought in the Exodus 1,500 years earlier. He's brought in King David 1,000 years earlier. The prophets 500 years earlier. See the pattern? We've got 500-year increments. But now he's going all the way back. He's leapfrogging over all of that, all the way back 2,000 years to Abraham, the ancestor, the founding father of the whole Jewish people. And the promise that God made to Abraham, the oath that God swore by himself, that he would bless God's people, they would bless Abraham's children to be God's people. Verse 74 to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. And that's why blessed be the Lord God of Israel, because he's proven himself true to a promise made 2,000 years earlier, a promise reaffirmed throughout the history of the Jewish people and finally brought to fruition in Zechariah's day with the coming of Jesus. The promise that a wandering and a wayward people would be reunited with their God to serve Him without fear. And listen, we worship in such security. But the Jewish people under the Romans, they had a lot to fear. And 
Christians today in most parts of the world still have a lot to fear. It is something to worship God without fear. That is a gift. And when Zechariah describes all this, he's taking the long view here that what was promised is as good as done. My, my, my. And it's to the promised Jesus that Zechariah now pivots. Verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Now he's talking to his infant son, a baby boy eight days old. And he's naming this baby, this baby, a prophet of the Most High. And there hasn't been a prophet in 500 years. The audacity of it. The Holy Spirit at work. A prophet because, still verse 76, you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. You're a prophet because you're going to go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Just like the angel told Zechariah in the temple, your son, he's going to prepare a people to receive the salvation of God. He's going to be like the lead motorcycle cop in the motorcade. You know, sirens and lights going so you know that somebody important's coming. Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. That's what's coming. It's rescue, it's healing, it's wholeness, it's salvation. And salvation how? Still verse 77, by the forgiveness of their sins. That's how salvation's happening, forgiveness of sins. Because that's why this whole 2,000-year history has been so tragic. God's promises have been consistent, but the people have been consistently wayward. The people have been consistently sinful. They wandered away from God over and over and over again. But now those sins, they're going to be forgiven. And now Zechariah concludes, verse 78, by the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us. Now we're in the future tense. Now we see what's coming. God's mercy is sending the light like the dawn. Why? Verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Imagine if you were on a hike and you got lost and darkness fell and imagine it was cold and you could hear the animals in the forest around you and imagine you couldn't get home. Imagine you were afraid. And being fear, afraid of the dark is largely a children's thing, but I don't know about you, but I've been in some dark places too that have scared me at the time. Have you ever been in the dark and been afraid, even as an adult? And then out of nowhere, a blazing light. Imagine it, a dawn where you expected no dawn showing a path where you saw no path, showing your feet the way home, the way to peace. Benedictus Deus Israel, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. That's what Zechariah said. He had faith that day but you might sometimes struggle to have faith. You might think, well, that's well and good for Zechariah. He saw an angel. I'm just not so sure. And if you come to church or if you tune in online and you 
see the people here, it's easy to look around and imagine that everybody else is like rock solid convinced. But I promise that's not true. I know it because I talk to you and I hear your stories and I know that faith is hard. And it couldn't have been easy for Zechariah either, to be honest, 500 years since the last prophet, the Jewish people suffering under the Roman thumb, Roman Empire would have felt eternal. How could Zechariah believe in God's promise? I mean, as it turns out, he didn't really. He didn't believe an angel when he showed up. But here's the thing. Sometimes faith isn't just about being able to go through a checklist of various doctrines and say, like, yes to all the boxes. What Zechariah shows us as he sings over his baby boy is a faith that looks like taking the long view instead. And the way that he does that, the way that he's anchored to this bigger picture is by his immersion in the Word of God and his connection to the story that it tells. And that's how he assembles on the spot this verbal collage of Scripture. And listen, the allusions, the connections between Zechariah's song and the scriptural reference, they go so much deeper than we could even go this morning. In the new year, we're inviting St. Paul's to do the E100 challenge, which is a habit of daily Bible readings. It's going to walk through a hundred of the most essential passages of Scripture. It takes the Bible as a whole book. We're going to cover that story of God's faithfulness together. We're going to get a grab, begin to get a grip on the arc of God's love for us. You should do it. It's going to be great. We're going to have more information on that coming in the weeks ahead. And a faith that takes the long view is a faith that you're a little part of a story that started before you and will continue after you're gone. But it's a story, and you're in it, and everything in a story has its place. The thing is, in stories, sometimes the timing can be rough. You want to get on with it to the good part, and, and God's timing can be hard for us sometimes. I know that. The story Zechariah sings about is the story of God's promise, and it's a long story, as we saw. Think about it. Time-wise, Zechariah was as far from Abraham as we are from Zechariah, 2,000 years. And our, here on earth, our time is like, we're like mayflies. We're like dandelions. We're here today, we're gone tomorrow. And there were lots of people, more than, more than not, over the 2,000 years between Abraham and Zechariah who were just kind of in between. They didn't live the Exodus. They didn't see King David. They didn't hear the prophets. They just lived with the knowledge of God's promise and they had to trust it. And if you struggle with faith, I wonder if those people, the in-between people, might be some inspiration to you. Because they didn't have miracles to sustain them? Because God's promise doesn't come with an expiration date. God doesn't wander or stray. Sometimes God feels far away, but that's just a feeling. It's not the truth. So how does your story change if you can take the long view? If you can see your story as just one paragraph, just one line, just maybe one word in that eternal story of God's faithfulness? If your story is part of God's story, and it is, where would your benedictus come from? Your blessed be the Lord God of Israel. 
Where has God been in your life? Just think back. Where has God been in your life? What has God done in your life? And listen, I'm not assuming it's all good. I know that many of you have suffered unimaginable loss, horrific pain. Maybe you're in the middle of that right now, and I'm not saying that it's okay or that it's easy. All I'm saying is that a story is different if it's a chapter or a novella. Your story is different when the story doesn't start and stop with your story. And when that happens, when you're part of God's story, then the losses you've suffered and the griefs you've endured, there can be salvation and peace at the end, even if you don't see it right now. Because the God who swore to an oath to Abraham never stopped being faithful, and he's faithful today. And the light of Jesus breaks upon us still, staggering us with beauty, guiding us with staggering feet home. Don't stop waiting, because the dawn is coming. Amen.